Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. This episode of This Is Why, it's going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. For the past few weeks, I've been a part of a team that's been working on a series examining wrongful convictions in Canada. For this series, I interviewed a number of people, including Robert Baltovich and Maria Shepard. These are two Canadians who were sent to jail for crimes they did not commit. So what you're going to hear now is the first two parts of this series combined into one episode. It was written by Pippa Reed voiced by John McComb, and I did the production. I'm Nikki Wright-Meyer, and this is Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. Imagine being the victim of such a deep miscarriage of justice You spend years or even decades of your life behind bars for a crime you did not commit. In Canada, there are at least 70 recorded instances of wrongful convictions. But how many have yet to be revealed? Perhaps the most notorious Canadian case involved David Milgard, the Saskatchewan man who languished in prison for 23 years, almost a quarter of a century for the 1969 murder of nurse Gail Miller. I like the feeling today where uh, truth is is beginning to come out. That was Milgard upon his release from prison in 1992, after his conviction was quashed. In this first episode of Canada's Wrongfully Convicted, we explore how and why a person comes to be accused and convicted of a crime they did not commit. One of the most common factors is eyewitness misidentification where a mistake's been made about who the actual suspect is, and those errors occur all the time. That's Catherine Campbell. She's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. She's also director of the student-run Innocence Ottawa Project, a group dedicated to investigating wrongful convictions. Campbell has spent much of her career examining how and why Canadians are wrongfully accused. She says there are many factors that can lead to a person being accused and convicted of a crime in which they had no involvement. There's also the problem of jailhouse informants who claim to have heard a confession or an admission in jail and are willing to testify to that effect, usually for a benefit. I think a huge issue too is tunnel vision, where the police, and the police are the first people who kind of sow the seeds for a wrongful conviction. And they're the first people who, you know, make decisions about collecting evidence and who to question and 
how to proceed. And there, sometimes they will have an idea, sometimes, uh, I guess, a misconception possibly about who the actual suspect is prior to having all the appropriate knowledge behind them before making that decision. And that sometimes can, that sort of tunnel vision can lead other people down the road to follow the same errors. Let's take a closer look at the concept of faulty eyewitness testimony. According to the nonprofit organization, The Innocence Project, it was a contributing factor in about 70% of convictions overturned through DNA testing. Well, the problem is, too, is that there's really no link between how confident you are in your testimony, let's say if you're an eyewitness, and how accurate you are. And I don't think you're the average layperson in a jury knows that. So you could have somebody on the stand saying, I am absolutely 100% sure it was that person. And hearing that, you think, wow, and it's you know, a credible-looking witness, a young person maybe, or somebody who's socially acceptable, let's say. And, and you may be fooled by that when, in fact, they could be completely wrong. Elizabeth Loftus from the University of California, Irvine, has studied the instances of wrongful conviction and the role false memories play. First of all, it's important to realize that faulty human memory, faulty eyewitness testimony, is one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions in North America. In one project, faulty eyewitness testimony contributed to over 70% of known wrongful convictions. So it's pretty important to, to study why people make mistakes and why they identify the wrong people or make other kinds of mistakes when they're recounting the details of a crime or some other event they might have witnessed. And there are lots of reasons that that happens. She adds there are a number of reasons why people's memories retain certain details and forget others. Sometimes just a long passage of time and the memory is faded. Sometimes people are exposed to some suggestive or misleading information, wrong information. Sometimes they're given a test, a lineup that isn't fair. So these are just a few of the reasons why witnesses sometimes make these kinds of serious mistakes. I think we have a false idea about our memories being like videotapes, you know, when in fact they're not, they're completely flawed. Let's go back to Catherine Campbell, the professor at the University of Ottawa, for a well-known American example of how faulty eyewitness testimony can result in a miscarriage of justice. The American case of Jennifer Thompson, she was sexually assaulted by a man who she thought was Ronald Cotton. She identified him in a lineup. She memorized the details of his face, thinking if I survive this because he had a knife, I will, I will remember so he can pay for this. What is his voice? Does he have an accent? Does he have a scar? Just trying to pay attention to a detail that if I survived and that was my plan, I'd be able to help the police catch him. She was 100% certain. Sat on the stand, identified him. The strongest emotion I felt was anger at the defense because I thought, how dare you? How dare you question me? How dare you try to paint me as someone who could possibly have forgotten what my rapist looked like? I mean, the one person you would never forget? How dare you? He went to jail. He got like two life sentences. And then DNA exonerated him 11 years later. And she was absolutely floored. She's like, there's no way. 
there's absolutely no way I know who this person wasn't, but it wasn't him. Ron, if I spent every second of every minute, every hour for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to how my heart feels. I'm so sorry. I don't think people intentionally make those kinds of errors. I think we have this belief that our memory is, is really solid when in fact it's not. I always believed that you couldn't have evidence for something that didn't happen. But I've come to understand by looking at my case and other cases that evidence is merely something that can be used to infer that you're guilty. That's Robert Baltovich, who had his world turned upside down when Toronto police accused him of murdering his girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain. I guess you could say I lived about as normal a life as anyone could, had lots of friends, played lots of sports, um, enjoyed reading, and of course I just happened to be uh, in love with a very beautiful young woman who left her house one day, told her mother she was going to be back in a couple of hours, and uh, she's never been back since. And uh, it was really at that point that uh, my very normal life became uh, very complicated, and it's been pretty complicated ever since. It was June 19th, 1990. I was probably the first person to realize that she was missing because uh, on that particular day, she had a night class that uh, would have begun at seven o'clock had she attended. And I was on my way to the campus. I was going for a workout at the gym and I wasn't really planning on seeing her, but I saw her car parked on the north side of Old Kingston Road in Scarborough, which is a park actually adjacent to the campus. And I just thought that was really unusual. And so I waited for a bit to see if she showed up because I couldn't quite figure out why it would be there. I made a mental note to myself that after my workout, I was going to go to her class just to make sure that she got there safely. Because, you know, to see your girlfriend's abandoned car in a park is not a normal thing. And of course, I went to her class and she didn't come out. And so I went back to the park where I'd previously seen her car and her car was missing. And so I immediately drove to her house and spoke to her mother and I said, something's wrong. I saw Liz's car uh, in the park adjacent to Scarborough campus. She wasn't there. She didn't go to her class. And uh, I think something might be wrong. And that was kind of the point at which I realized, you know, something unusual is going on. But I guess in the back of my mind, I still thought there was a chance that she had actually met a friend for dinner that night. But uh, when I got the call the next morning from her mother at 630 in the morning asking her if uh, Liz was with me, and I said, no, of course she isn't. That's when I think we all realized, okay, something's wrong. The next few days and weeks would send Robert's life into a tailspin. Instead of dealing with the confusion and terror surrounding his girlfriend's disappearance, Robert was instead focused on by Toronto police, who had ever-growing suspicion he had killed the woman he loved. They didn't have very much other than the fact that they knew I was Liz's boyfriend, so obviously you're going to make the list of possible suspects. Five months after Elizabeth's disappearance, Robert was charged with murder. Right up until the day I was arrested, I kept saying to myself, and I would say to my mother, who was terrified about what was happening, you know what, it's okay because they can't find evidence for something I didn't do. And then, of course, they show up at your home one day at 7.30 and they say you're under arrest for first-degree murder. And I just thought to myself, you know, somebody must have lied, somebody, in my case, 
several people must have said something to the police that simply wasn't true. And those people were eyewitnesses who falsely claimed to have seen Robert with Elizabeth on the day of her disappearance. In my case, you not only have witnesses who claim to have seen me at different times and places when I simply wasn't there, but in many cases, these witnesses were hypnotized as well. And until they were hypnotized, they remembered almost nothing about what they had seen. That's right. The witnesses were hypnotized by the prosecution in an effort to jog their memories. However, all it seemed to do was distort their memories, leading to false testimony. You know, one witness in particular who the police interviewed the day before I was first interrogated claimed that she'd seen Liz on a picnic table. Her best and first memory was that the person Liz was sitting with was a middle-aged white woman. And by the time she showed up in my trial, she was pointing at me and saying, that's the man I saw. And then another individual came forward five months later after being previously discounted by the police. And they actually recorded that they believed his evidence was impossible. And he claimed that he had seen me driving Liz's car three days after she went missing. And I think that if you were to remove those two witnesses from the equation, uh, it's pretty clear that they probably wouldn't have even mustered enough evidence to arrest me, let alone convict me. Robert knew he was innocent. Yet in February of 1992, he was forced to stand trial for murdering Elizabeth Bain. Put yourself in that courtroom. The eyes of everyone upon you as you wait for the jury to hand down a verdict which could change the course of your future how would you feel i just kept saying you know what you're innocent you can't be convicted you're innocent you can't be convicted you didn't do this and then of course when they said we find the accused guilty as charged i mean it was a pretty brutal feeling and i just tried to stay strong but i could you know, I just kind of glanced behind me and uh, I saw that a lot of my family members and friends were crying. And uh, the one thing I'll remember even more than my own reaction was uh, there was kind of an audible gasp that came from some of the media who had been covered the case. One woman in particular, I remember saying, oh my God, they found him guilty. At the same time police were gathering evidence to put Robert behind bars, another Canadian was about to be wrongfully accused of a heinous crime she did not commit. In 1991, Maria Shepard had three young children and was soon to become pregnant with her fourth child. You know, I was 21 years old at the time, a young mom, never been in, in, involved or had interaction with the law. Yet she was charged with causing the death of her three-and-a-half-year-old stepdaughter, Cassandra. Cassandra had been ill. A few months prior to her death, she'd even undergone a CAT scan that showed some notable space between her skull and her brain. On April 9th, two days before Cassandra passes, Cassandra has what I've now learned, and I didn't know when I was 21, was a petite mal seizure. Her eyes went into the back of her head very quickly, and it was very brief, and her shoulders twitched a bit. I didn't think of it as anything at, at that point and didn't know. But then later in the day, when uh, Cassandra's father came home from work, my husband, Cassandra had thrown up again, and he bathed her and cleaned her up, and then he brought her downstairs. Shortly after he put her on the couch, Cassandra had a grand mal seizure. 
And again, we'd never seen any of these seizures. Everything was happening so quickly. She was rushed to Peel Memorial Hospital in Brampton. And at that time, my husband and I actually brought the CAT scans that we had done in February to SickKids Hospital. It was at that point then that everything switched and all of a sudden myself, my husband and Cassandra's biological mother were in a room and being asked if any of us had harmed her. So this is when I've now learned that the dirty approach which was being used in the 90s by sick kids and the scan team was underway. And that was any child that comes in that you can't reasonably figure out a natural cause immediately is to be treated as suspect. And I became that suspect very quickly. Police were convinced Cassandra's death was foul play and that Maria was to blame. They told her that if she didn't confess, her other children would be taken away and that her name would appear on the front page of the newspaper. You know, I went into this uh, interrogation with the police and it turned into a very difficult situation, a very lengthy amount of time and hours in the interrogation room and uh, this wasn't too long after we had buried Cassandra's about two weeks afterwards and um, you know they just they just keep going at you no matter how much you say to them you had nothing to do with it they're just not satisfied they wanted a quick close to this case and they got it they were building their case based on evidence submitted by Dr. Charles Smith who at the time was a revered pediatric forensic pathologist at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children. He stated that he found a mark on Cassandra's skull that could only have come from Maria's wristwatch. He concluded the cause of death was blunt force trauma. I'm sitting in this room with them, and they're telling me that a doctor has told them that they have proof that I was actually responsible for her death. At that point, it took a whole turn and a whole opposite direction, which took away completely from me saying I I hadn't done anything to harm her. And it didn't matter what I said. It continued to go in the direction of they're looking for a confession. And ultimately, to get them to stop and to also not lose my kids the following day and to end up in the newspapers, they, they got the false confession from me. Maria felt she had no choice but to confess to a crime she did not commit. It was a very, very uh, terrifying moment to actually see that I had been responsible or that I had done something to harm her. But at the same time, I mean, you're going through a mixed emotions. I was exhausted, completely exhausted psychologically. I thought that we were going to be finished with it. They had told me when I went into the station earlier in the day that I'd be going home by dinner time. That didn't happen either. When you've been crying for hours and hours and hours, you're trying to tell your story, they keep saying to you, well, we don't believe you're being honest with us. It doesn't matter what you say anymore. They're just going to keep pushing. And eventually you reach a point where you're just tired and you say in the back of your head, okay, just say what what it is that they want. And it's going to stop. Indeed, when that happened, the question stopped very quickly. In reality, Cassandra had actually died from natural causes. Dr. Smith would later be stripped of his license for doing to Maria what he did to a potential dozen other families, framing evidence to implicate them in the deaths of their own children. Charles Smith releases this this report with this diagram. And when I saw that for the first time, it was clear to me. I mean, it was it was clear. It was a clear framing. He, he did it specifically 
to match my watch to suit the case for the crown. On October 22, 1992, Maria was sent to prison for manslaughter. She was sentenced to two years less a day. It was definitely scary. It, it actually didn't, it didn't dawn on me how serious the situation was going to be. I thought that by complying and doing everything that was asked of me, I would get home sooner so that I could try and get somebody to help me and get this all fixed. And that didn't happen at all the way that I thought it was going to be. Maria Shepard and Robert Baltovich, two different cases of wrongful conviction with similar nightmare experiences. For me to try and tell somebody that everything that just happened in court isn't true, except for my family, of course, they just thought I was crazy. Rob was hauled off to pre-sentence custody in Toronto, where he spent 24 hours a day locked up for nine months. It was horrific. It was 24-hour lockup. I didn't really get out much other than for uh, two visits a week. It's just uh, the food was horrible. I didn't sleep very well. I lost a lot of weight. Um, you're basically locked in a cell all day. I was placed in a paddy wagon dressed in a maternity dress, and I was shackled at the feet. And I remember blanking myself out to the fact that I was now sitting handcuffed and shackled. And I was in shackles and leg irons, and I remember we walked off the bus and we walked into this huge metal cage and they locked us up. With other inmates. People who had also been convicted of crimes. Going into the prison system as a woman that is pregnant and you're innocent at the same time. This is the most surreal and nightmarish experience I've ever had. I had a whole other perception of what prison was going to be like. Prison is not a pleasant place. Uh, you're always worrying about your personal safety. I'm told that, that I'm to tell other inmates that I was there for murdering my husband because if they find out that you're there for an offense on a child, you're done. And then in my case, you're wondering if you're ever going to make it out because I was serving a life sentence and I knew at some point if I were ever eligible to be released, they'd want to hear me say that I committed the crime and uh, I just not only wouldn't do that, I wasn't able to do that because I was innocent. But, you know, after, after eight years, I was fortunate enough to make it out and uh, you know, I've never had to go back since. What you just heard is a part of a five-part series on wrongful convictions in Canada. If you want to hear more about how Rob and Maria managed life in prison, how they got out, and what in the future can be done to minimize wrongful convictions, then check out the rest of this series at globalnews.ca. This Is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. I was a part of producing that Canada's Wrongfully Convicted series as well. And I really want to give a special thanks to Pippa Reed and John McComb. Pippa wrote that series and John is the deep, booming voice of it. This Is Why is a national radio show and podcast. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, of course, wherever you download your favorite podcasts from. Give us a rating and a review too. Plus, we're on Twitter at This Is Why. And you can always send us an email. This Is Why at CuriousCast.ca. Just like Heather and Al did this past week. Thanks for your story ideas, you guys. We really, really appreciate it. And we do consider all of the story ideas you send us. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.